You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Tim Minchin already said it. Tim Minchin said it better than I could ever say it, so I'm just going to let Tim Minchin say it. Fuck the motherfucker, fuck the motherfucker, fuck the motherfucker, he's a fucking motherfucker. Fuck the motherfucker, fuck the fucking fucker, fuck the motherfucker, he's a total fucking fucker. Fuck the motherfucker, fuck the motherfucker, fuck the motherfucker, fucking fuck the motherfucker. Fuck the motherfucker, fuck the motherfucking Pope. If you're wondering what... This is about the Pope signed off on the Catholic Church putting out a statement over the weekend reiterating its opposition to same-sex marriage, which no one asked them to do, and there was really no need for them to do because everybody already knows the Catholic Church won't bless same-sex marriages or some opposite-sex marriages. Divorced straight people can't get remarried in the church. But the church felt like now, now was a really good time to remind everyone not just that they oppose same-sex relationships, but also to add, to turn the knife to add that being gay is a choice, which is a lie, and that being gay, according to their imaginary friends, is a sin, which my imaginary friends insist it isn't. So we'll have to mark that one down as a draw until the day all of our imaginary friends can get together and duke it out Avengers Endgame style. You know, the Catholic Church has been trying to slap the dick out of my mouth my whole life and pry the wedding ring off my finger for the last decade, and it hasn't worked. And you'd think they'd get bored and give up and go, I don't know, feed the hungry or house the homeless or care for the sick or turn in some child-raping priest to the authorities, something else, anything else. But these motherfuckers, they just can't stop telling on themselves. And speaking of motherfuckers telling on themselves, straight people— Some straight people are claiming they're something more than straight. They're super straight because they don't sleep with trans people. Some online trolls over the weekend claimed super straight as a sexual orientation. They're cis straight people who are exclusively attracted to other cis straight people. They even created their very own pride flag to represent this oppressed majority. The super straight pride flag is black and orange, the grinder colors, as Refinery29 pointed out which made me wonder exactly who was being trolled here until I looked at the shit that was being pumped out under the super straight hashtags. And there was a lot of anti-trans hate speech being shared and homophobic hate speech being shared by the super straight brigades, which led to bans on Reddit and TikTok. And it's just been a, a whole thing. The super straights say they are not bigots, but their memes, again, which are not only transphobic but homophobic as well, would seem to demonstrate otherwise. They insist they're actually pushing back against being told that they're bigots for not being attracted to trans people. Telling straight people who aren't attracted to trans people they're bigots, telling gay people, gay men and lesbians, they're bigots if they're unwilling to sleep with their date trans people. Nobody does that. That is not a thing that happens. At least not according to some prominent trans voices on Twitter and elsewhere. Not only is no one telling anyone they're bigots, that they won't sleep with or date trans people, it's transphobic to suggest that anyone would do such a thing. But if you've spent more than 20 minutes on the internet in the last decade, you've probably run across people doing just that. I've gotten, I don't know how many letters uh, from people who've been accused of being transphobic bigots for not wanting to sleep with trans folks, for not being attracted to trans people. And not just straight people. I get letters and calls from gays and lesbians and bisexuals 
who've told me that they were hounded out of queer spaces online and off for not being attracted to trans folks or willing to date trans folks. Some of the people hurling these accusations of bigotry are trans, but not all trans people do this. And most trans people have more important things to worry about than the cis people who aren't interested in sleeping with them. And as is so often the case these days with LGBTQ++++++ stuff, most of the people out there doing this shit are our allies, our toxic allies. It would be nice if toxic allies had a pride flag of their own too so we could see them coming and run. Anyway, the super straight community kind of has us cornered. We have insisted, the LGBTQ++++ community, we have insisted that sexual identities are sacrosanct and cannot be questioned. That's why we have to pretend that sapiosexuals and demisexuals are sexual orientations because of course they are because they have names and they have pride flags. So these super straight trolls are playing what they think is a trump card. Hey, it's my sexual orientation, my sexual identity. Here's my pride flag. And by the queer community's own rules, you can't question or doubt or roll your eyes. And if you do, then you're the bigot. For the record, and again, trans people have more pressing concerns than straight people who don't want to sleep with them, or gay people who don't want to sleep with them for that matter. Anti-trans legislation is moving through Republican-controlled state legislatures in red states all over the country. That's a real concern. That's a real problem. Some straight people making a grinder flag and marching around in circles on the internet, not a real concern. And there are more and more cis people out there now who are open to hooking up with and fucking and partnering with and dating and marrying, Pope be damned, trans people more than ever before. But no one has to sleep with anyone that they don't want to sleep with. And some people, as the trans writer Evan Urquhart over at Slate has written, some people have preferences that aren't just about gender, but also about sex and genitals. And there are ways to express those preferences and act on them without being an asshole. To the super straights, I gotta say, you're being assholes. And being a straight person who's only attracted to other cis straight people is not special. It's not achievement unlocked. You don't have a superpower. You can't fly. You aren't super straight. You're average straight, baseline straight, basic straight. You are heterosexuals. And there's no shame in that. I'm pretty average myself. Trans men are men, but I'm not just attracted to men. I'm a homosexual who's pretty much exclusively attracted to men who are also members of my same sex. There are a lot of gay men out there who are attracted to trans men as well as cis gay men and have sex with trans men and date and marry trans men. I've noticed this is more common among my younger gay male friends, which would seem to indicate that there's some degree of socialization at play here. They're the super gays. Their gayness is bigger. It transcends biological sex. Their gayness is all-encompassing in that it encompasses all men, not just cis gay men. My gayness in comparison is basic. My gayness is smaller and more limited. My gayness may even be feeble. But my gayness is my gayness, and I'm stuck with it, and my gayness, to use an internetism, is valid. The kind of straightness, the people pushing this super straight meme, this super straight bullshit, that kind of straightness, average, basic, baseline, straight, but also valid. It's only bigoted when there's an attempt to weaponize it, to shame trans people for existing and to shame straight people whose straightness is big enough 
to transcend biological sex. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much Lovecast, more guests, more calls, no ads. Go subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Dr. Gail Patricelli joins me on today's show to talk about birds who fuck cow pies and researchers like Dr. Gail Patricelli who build sex robots for birds. Sex robots for birds. It's a thing. We talk about it today on the Magnum. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old pan person calling from the dry conservative side of Washington State with a quarantine sex success story. I have been with my person for almost two years, um, but especially in the last year with COVID and other stuff, we haven't gotten to see as much of each other as we would like. Um, So we had a mutual day off and we made plans to watch movies and snuggle up and it was going to be this really sweet thing. And um, somehow the joke had come up that we were just going to watch movies. There was going to be no funny stuff or touching or anything like that. Um, and so obviously I was like, well, I could persuade you. <laughs> so we're both switches. And so we usually will wrestle to decide who gets to top. But this time she was like, I want to lose. And which is totally fine by me. Obviously she needs it. And I love fucking dominating her. So it's, it's perfect. Um, so I strap her down to a chair with some, um, leather restraints. I get out, you know, a little Wartenberg pinwheel and I have like a paddle. So we're doing some sensory play and some punishment. Uh, if she refuses to call me sir or doesn't, uh, do as I ask or just for fun because yeah, I like it. And then I get out my Hitachi and I tell her, you know, you need to tell me before you come. And you're not allowed to until I give you permission, (laughs) Um, which I knew was going to be failed out the gate because I had my Hitachi like really fucking hard against her clit. So I'm edging her, pulling it away, and then I just fucking hold it there. And while she's begging and stuff, then the song on our Amazon playlist changes and it turns into fucking... The Bad Touch by the Bloodhound Gang, which, while is chock full of sexual innuendos, is not in any way, shape, or form a sexy song. But we both nostalgically started singing along. It completely broke the, like, sex mood, but we just started giggling. I undid the restraints, and we just curled up in bed and, like just cuddled and chatted and had this like perfect magical day together from then on. Honestly, it was kind of the best. So, you know, shame on you, Bloodhound Gang, for killing my moment, but it was kind of a perfect day. Thank you for calling in and sharing your story. I loved it. I feel a little called out by it, though, because I was waiting for the orgasm. I feel like a little bit of a hypocrite because I'm always telling people that great sex doesn't necessarily have to end with an orgasm and you two had some great sex that because of the bloodhound gang didn't end with an orgasm and I felt cheated somehow. So I'm going to check my orgasm privilege or my privileging of orgasm and just appreciate your story. Climax or no climax. Thank you for calling in and sharing. All right. We like to begin each week's show with a listener success story before we get to listener problems. If you have a sexual success story you'd like us to open next week's show with, give us a call 206-302-2064 and share your success story and you might hear it at the top of next week's Lovecast. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old cis straight male living in San Francisco. My wife and I have been together for about five years, married for two. At the beginning of the relationship, on our first date, actually, I told her that I was open to polyamory. She didn't even know what that word meant at first, so after learning about it, it was very turned off. A few dates in, I found out how she was feeling, and we talked it out. I told her what I really, truly felt at the time, which was that polyamory was only a consideration of mine, and it was more important to me to find an awesome partner who I vibed with and loved. Our relationship went on, and I was fully expecting my interest in polyamory to wane. Unfortunately, it didn't. The topic of conversation came up a few times, resulting in a lot of tension. It's clear that my wife finds the concept of poly disgusting and she feels insulted and degraded that she isn't enough for me, quote-unquote. The topic got brushed under the rug and declared taboo, along with anything related, such as swinging or group sex. I resolved to close the door on that part of myself in the interest of the relationship which I otherwise cherish. Closing the door didn't work, though, and it keeps creeping back up in my mind. Fast forward until recently... We had an unrelated dispute, but it took longer than usual for me to forgive and forget. Because I kept thinking about what could have been in another relationship, an open one. As part of a long conversation, she got it out of me that I was feeling this way. And at this point, she feels disgusted, insulted, and degraded in the same old ways, and we're both left wondering if this difference between us is irreconcilable. I really don't know whether my interest in Polly is something innate in my being, or the result of some other latent desire. I never explored much sexually before our marriage due to a conservative upbringing, but at this point I wish I did. I also suffered from self-esteem issues and bullying throughout school, so I can imagine that dating and seduction is just a way to make me feel more confident. Or maybe I'm just inherently poly. I do know I feel a tendency toward compersion and haven't felt sexual jealousy since the early days of my first relationship. Is polyamory a sexual orientation? And if so, how do I know if it's mine? Or if I'm just being a hedonistic, selfish jerk? There are some people out there who describe polyamory as a sexual orientation. I'm not one of those people. It pisses off the people who do describe polyamory as a sexual orientation. And it can't be that these people are polyamorous and I'm not and I don't know what I'm talking about because I am polyamorous. Too, but I don't think it's a sexual orientation. I think it's a relationship model. And people adopt, hopefully adopt, know themselves well enough before they fucking get married to adopt the relationship model that works best for them. And for a great many people, that is monogamy. Mixed in among the hordes of people practicing monogamy are a great many people that monogamy is not right for, but they were bullied into believing that it's what they had to do. They were convinced that it was Right, because good people are monogamous and I want to be good. Therefore, I'm going to be a monogamous person because a monogamous person is a good person. A little bit of circular logic there. So not everyone who's doing monogamy is doing relationships wrong. There are some people who are doing monogamy who monogamy is wrong for. And they will at some point get the fuck out of the monogamy business. So are you polyamorous in your core to your being? I I don't know. But clearly – I don't think so. I don't think it's a sexual orientation. But clearly polyamory is the right relationship – model for you. It is the model that you would prefer. And five years ago, when you committed to a woman who wasn't interested in polyamory, you may have believed at the time that it was something you could have walked away from. But your interest in polyamory didn't wane, you said. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Even people who prefer monogamy and are in sexually exclusive monogamous relationships and successfully so for decades, they still want to fuck other people 
They still have fantasies about other people. They still flirt with other people and develop sometimes crushes on other people. So it's not like somebody is into monogamy and they're good at it or successful at it or it's right for them because they have no interest in group sex or sex with other people or three ways or anything else. They very well might and often, if you can get them to be honest, do and will admit to it. So just by itself that you're a horn dog and you want to have all these other kinds of sexual experiences doesn't mean you can't do monogamy. Doesn't mean monogamy isn't right for you. But this woman clearly isn't right for you. You married someone who is disgusted by who you are sexually. That's not – please, God, tell me she's not pregnant. Give us a call back. Let us know she's not pregnant. Give us a call back. Let us know you don't have kids. And then talk to a divorce lawyer and get the fuck out of this relationship. You may be cut out for polyamory in that you don't experience sexual jealousy, that you can project yourself into an experience where your partner or your spouse is having sex with somebody else and you feel compersion. You feel happy for your partner to, to have that sex or have that relationship or turned on by it. That may make polyamory easier for you to do and open relationships and group sex and whatever else you want to do with somebody who's more sexually adventurous, somebody that you're more sexually potentially compatible with than you are with the person you married. Great. Great. I still don't think that having a personality trait like that or sexual interest like that or sexual capacity like that means you are – that you have a polyamorous orientation because I don't think there's any such thing as a polyamorous sexual orientation. And I don't think there's any such thing as a monogamous sexual orientation either. These are just relationship models that human beings adopt that work for some, not for others. We are not a, a, a monogamous species. So it's not like just doing openness or poly spares you from grief or shitty partners or bad sex or being violated. No, it doesn't. It's not a force field. It's not magic. Works for some, just like monogamy works for some. Monogamy, clearly what your wife wants. Clearly not what you want, which means you do not want each other. And you need to get a divorce and start the fuck over in the partner business. Hey, Dan. Quigo here from New Zealand. I've got a question about messaging etiquette on Grindr. So I've been messaged by a few guys recently who have been really pushy and almost angry about not getting an initial response from me. And typically, if I'm not interested in someone, I don't respond. But I'm starting to question if this is actually rude. And I guess, I mean, the, the question is, am I obliged to provide people with a response on Grinder? I want to tell you, well, I want to tell you the truth, what's true. You're not obliged to respond to anyone on Grinder. Or anywhere else. It would be kind. It'd be a kinder world. Grinder might be a kinder place. If when you weren't interested, you could say thanks, but no thanks. The problem, though, is a lot of those same people who get aggro at you when you don't respond, if you respond with a thanks, but no thanks, will get aggro at you for that thanks, but no thanks. It's sort of a you can't win scenario often. So, the social norm around grinder use is you're not obligated to respond to everybody who sends you a message. And the understanding is, you know, a, a reasonably attractive person, particularly a conventionally attractive person, is probably going to get more messages on grinder than they could reasonably be expected to respond to. So when you're sending someone a message, 
you have to have your expectations in check about whether you're going to get a response. And people on Grinder are looking for dick right now. And if you lined up the dick after signing on to Grinder, you might not even see that message until the next time you sign on to Grinder a few weeks from now. So no, no. The simple answer here to your question is no. You're not obligated to respond to guys on Grinder. It would be a courtesy to respond to guys on Grinder that you're not interested in, but it is not an obligation. And there's just no guarantee if you respond courteously that the person you responded to courteously, the person you said thanks but no thanks to in a kind and courteous manner, is going to respond to that rejection in a kind and courteous manner. So I think your best course of action when you're not interested on a hookup app like Grinder is just to say nothing. And if somebody gives you shit for saying nothing, for not responding, block them. And not only don't you have to see them again, they won't be able to see you again and you won't hear from them again. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old straight female. I've been dating my boyfriend for about a year and a half. About a month ago, I found out that he had been cheating on me for the past three months with a girl who had recently joined his immediate friend group. I feel hurt and betrayed, mostly about the lengths that he went to cover it up and the lies and manipulation that were required to do so. No one in his friend group knew that he was dating me except one person who he had asked not to mention me too much in front of the others. Our relationship had always seemed emotionally distant from the beginning, mostly on his part, and at the time of the cheating, it was at its height. I had mostly checked out from trying to be emotionally intimate with him. Now that it's all out in the open, we are finally communicating and open with each other. We talked about how much we love and care for each other. We want to make things work, but there are a few things that I'm weary of. First, whenever we talk, the conversation always seems to go back to how guilty and messed up he feels about the whole thing. Although he has a right to feel this way, I feel as though it has drifted into a depression that I am not capable of pulling him out of. I think he feels like being depressed is some way of paying for what he did. I'm not really sure how to respond to this as I feel like his suffering does not feel productive to our relationship, but at the same time he should be feeling guilty about what he's done. Part of his mood is also due to the fact that no one in his friend group will talk to him right now, something that of course is completely within their right for how he betrayed them. Nonetheless, he was the one who did me wrong, and it takes a lot of energy for me to be constantly showing him compassion. He says he wants to stay and be good to me and stay with me. He is willing to listen to me when I express my pain, but somehow it always seems to come back to how bad he feels, as though that is somehow making me feel better about it. I'm torn because I feel like our relationship never really got a chance to have the emotional intimacy we both agree was missing. Now that we are open with each other, it feels like we have this chance to start over, but I have my doubts that he will be able, will ever be able to forgive himself, let alone trust that I could forgive him, which I know that eventually, if things were right, that I'd be able to. What do I do, Dan? Please break up with this guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Job done. <laughs> nice talking with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He hid you from his friends. Was there a reason he was hiding you? Is there something that he was ashamed of? And do you want to be with someone who's ashamed to be known as your boyfriend? Yeah. And, and I think 
he's a he seems to be a very kind of private person, even with his friends. And um, and I I am friends with someone in that group, and and she kind of said the same. But it just kind of got to a point where it allowed all of this to happen, you know. Well, not um, it allowed all of this to happen. No passive voice. He set this up so that he could mm-hmm. have a girlfriend, have you, and cheat on you too. And keeping his friends in the dark yeah. about the fact that he'd been in a relationship for more than a year while he was fucking this mm-hmm. other girl isn't something that happened. It wasn't a meteor strike. It wasn't a lightning strike. It was him being a manipulative mm-hmm. piece of shit. And the manipulation has continued after the revelation, yeah. which is what he's doing when you want to have a conversation about what he did wrong and the impact his actions had on you and how – you feel, and he turns it around so that he's like whipping himself, flagellating himself so hard that you end up comforting him. Yeah. You're right. Not, he's not taking <laughs> response. You know, if, you know, sometimes people cheat and sometimes people have reasons and sometimes people are shitty to people they love then see what they did, see the the pain it caused and and make amends and get better and, and and act differently, behave differently. But he hasn't done that. His actions now are similar. They're cut from the same cloth. He was being manipulative and deceitful before, and now he's being manipulative and deceitful in his own way. Have you met any of his friends in the wake of this? No, just, just the person I was already friends with before. Okay. And yeah, and I I think I've listened to so many of your calls about cheating and infidelity and how people can get past this. But I've also listened to so many of your calls where you haven't been dating for that long. You're still young and and all of that, too. And it was just so hard to know, to know if I could, if I could forgive him for this or if I could, if I could get past this with him. Well, you haven't been dating for long and you're still young and the entire time you were dating, he was treating you like shit. Yeah. And so my advice yeah. to you would be it shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. That you should have broken up with him a year ago. A year and five months yeah. ago. When he was yeah. communicating to you that he would condescend to date you secretly and fuck you on the sly so long as nobody knew about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. As a gay guy, yeah. you know, who was a gay teenager <laughs> decades ago, I had boyfriends who were closeted that I couldn't, you know, who could their friends couldn't know about me. The closet yeah. sucks. It's a painful place to 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 realize you you're in if you you know you're just gay and you grew up and People assume you're straight and you have to correct them. But to be shoved into the closet by someone who says they care about you, as my closeted boyfriends did to me because I was already out and I had to like be hidden away, or like your boyfriend did to you, that sucks. That's painful. And and in a way, it's unforgivable, particularly if he can't recognize that he is not the wronged party here. He is not his own victim. You are mm-hmm. his victim. You are the wrong party. You mm-hmm. are the person he has to make it up to if he wants the relationship to continue. And he hasn't made it up to you. He's manipulated you into behaving as if it needs to be made up to him, that he's the wrong party, that you have to comfort him. 
fuck this guy, dump this guy. Yeah. 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 And you know, even actually this summer I, I confronted him cause I haven't met his parents. We never take pictures together. I don't meet his friends. And I confronted him about that. And he was just like, I'm just like that. I'm, I'm just a private person. And, and nothing's stuff. changed. And, and I trusted him. And nothing's yeah, changed, nothing right? Has changed. Okay. I promise yeah. you he's still fucking somebody else. I promise you that he's either fucking some other girl right now on the side or plans to. Yeah. And, and who knows when it would have stopped if, if everybody didn't find out, you know, because right. he, he didn't tell me I found out. Yeah. Please end the relationship. I promise you okay. he won't feel bad. This like him. Oh, woe is me. I've done such a terrible thing. I'm such a terrible person. Like you may fear breaking up with him because he's depressed now and he's so sad and he's, you know, beating himself up. It's all an act. The minute you break up with him, he's, you know, that act stops. There's no, nothing sincere about it. He doesn't really feel bad. He's yeah. performing I feel bad to keep you. Yeah. Um, I, that's like one of the big reasons I've been so scared to break up with him is, is because I'm, I'm really worried about him and he's all alone and, and all of that. But that's not enough of a reason to stay. He'll be fine. And someone yeah. like that, you know, he's young too, I assume. Yeah. Sometimes it, somebody like that who behaves that way, who treats people that they want to fuck and maybe even like, but want to manipulate and control, it takes being dumped a few times, maybe a few dozen times before they realize they're going to have to behave differently if they want intimacy, connection in their lives. So you're doing him a favor yeah. right now. Yeah. Whatever it is that you yeah. like about him, dumping him is the nicest thing you could possibly do for him in the long term. And the best thing you can do for yourself, short, medium, and long term. Do it today. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for calling. I'm like such a huge fan. <laughs> you're welcome. And, and give us a call back. Let us know how it yeah. went. And you can feel free if you're afraid that if it's face to face and he's so hot or he's so he's got such great moves that, you know, meeting him up, meeting up with him and doing it the right way face to face may make it harder. Text. Yeah. Do it by text. Okay. Okay. You don't owe him anything. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Hey, Dan. Cis gay male here, late 20s. My um, quarantine fuck buddy recently proposed that we film a video together. And I like the idea in theory, and I think it's pretty hot. But as I'm sure you can tell where this is going, I am nervous about how I can best keep it between the two of us. Um, obviously, there's always going to be a risk here. But I was wondering if there are any tips that you or your listeners have when it comes to protecting uh, our privacy in this brave new world of the internet. Uh, I don't have any reason to believe that he would leak this video, but I want us to take all the precautions we can. I'm a catastrophizer. I have a really bad case of worst case scenario disorder. So when you said you have no reason to believe that this guy would ever leak the video, what instantly leapt to mind was I think Lacey Peterson, never suspected, had no reason to believe that Scott Peterson would murder her and her unborn child. Her husband, Scott Peterson, who's in prison, would murder her and her unborn child. And yet that's a thing that happened to Lacey Peterson. So yeah, it could leak. He could leak it. So you and your fuck buddy have a good relationship now and you trust him now. But there's a lot of people out there 
with shitty, angry exes, ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, ex-wives, ex-friends with benefits, ex-fuck buddies that they have toxic relationships with now who have retaliated or, or, or lashed out or committed acts of revenge pornography. And so whether you make this video with this guy that you trust really depends on your tolerance for that kind of eternally lingering risk. So once you make the video, he could tell you he deleted it after the relationship ends or after you guys have enjoyed the video. doesn't mean he's deleted it. He may think he's deleted it but not completely deleted it. He may share it with a friend he trusts who then may find it in his files or his on his computer four years from now and not remember it was shared in confidence and that he was supposed to delete it and then it could get – out there. Whatever video you make, it could get out there. So yeah, that's always going to be a risk. I think in this climate, in this day and age, it matters less and less. It used to be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago that if sex messages of dirty photographs or God forbid, dirty moving images got out into the wild onto the, you know, nascent internet, that that could destroy a person's life, career, reputation, relationships with family members. And these days with so many people sexting and swapping videos and and internet dating and swapping dirty pictures with the people with people they barely they haven't even met yet sometimes. I think there's a growing sense that we're all in this together, that we all have some dirty samizdat out there circulating. And so if we make that a career and relationship family relationships, death penalty offense, we're all going to get executed at some point. So while there's always going to be a risk that this could get out there, I think changing cultural norms makes that potentiality less consequential and therefore less risky. Or you got to factor that into the risk calculus here as you decide whether or not to make these films or these videos with your fuck buddy. There's that advice that people get from lawyers that you should never write anything down or put anything in an email that you don't want to read on the cover of the New York Times. Well, you never want to take a photograph or make a dirty video clip that you wouldn't want your mother to see. Cover of the New York Times, that is definitely a worst case scenario if you're conspiring with someone via email to do something illegal. Mom getting to watch it, definitely the worst case scenario. If you're making a dirty movie with a fuck buddy, but might be something that you want to think about. If I were you, I would probably go for it. You are you, though. You have to ask yourself, what is your tolerance for risk? And as a worst case scenario disorder sufferer, I would encourage you to contemplate just for a minute the worst case scenario. That you make a dirty video and... It gets out there. That's not even the worst case. It could just be out there and that could come to your attention, but it's not being maliciously sent to your employer or your family members or your current, the person you're with now or person you're with in the future. What if that happens? What if he sends it to your mom? Contemplate that before you make that video and then make your choice. Hi, I just broke up with my boyfriend of five years and I started dating a new guy. And I want to bring him around the house and stuff like that, but I understandably can't. My question is about the fact that I live with my current boyfriend. Should I move out 
if I do, I probably won't be able to afford a very nice place. And I'm just wondering what the most respectful way to deal with this is because my ex is still trying to get me back and that's not in the question, but I don't really know how to handle introducing my other roommates to my current boyfriend. I was team move the fuck out, even if it meant a less nice place to live for a while, until the end of the call when you mentioned that you have other roommates, which made me think this might be some sort of group home situation, a lot of young people sharing an apartment uh, or a big house and everybody has their own rooms. And I think that might make it a little bit different. You could possibly stay in the place where you are, even though your ex is there. It's going to be super fucking awkward if your ex wants to get back together with you, your ex of five years, and you're bringing a new boyfriend around and introducing him to roommates who are also your ex-boyfriend's roommates and friends with you and friends with your ex-boyfriend too. And this will, of course, put not just your boyfriend in an awkward position, your current boyfriend, the guy you're seeing now, and your ex-boyfriend in an awkward position. It'll put your roommates in an awkward position too. But I lived in a big shared house at college and it wasn't uncommon for there to be a relationship between two members of the house and for that relationship to end and for new relationships to start. And people kind of had to get the fuck over it because moving out wasn't possible in the middle of a semester. Moving out wasn't financially possible or moving out wasn't what either party wanted to do. And they just had to tough it out. You can go to your ex-boyfriend and you can say to him, look, how do you want to handle this? I'm dating a new guy. I want him to be able to come to the place where I live. I don't want to make you feel any worse than you already do. And I don't want to put you and our roommates in an awkward position. So, but, but how do you feel? And it might not be possible. You know, he might decide to move the fuck out rather than have to encounter your new boyfriend on the way to the bathroom at three o'clock in the morning. Or he might say, I can, I can deal. I can roll with this, which is what people in the big house that I lived in with a bunch of people at college typically tended to do. They would commit to fake it till they made it. It doesn't rhyme when you say it in the past tense, but that's what they would commit to. Fake it till you make it. That's what they would do. They would pretend that they were okay with it and eventually they would get okay with it. Is your ex-boyfriend capable of that? You know him better than I do. Is he angry? Is he potentially violent? Is he manipulative and, and shitty and constantly complaining about it and trying to weaponize the relationships with the roommates to convince you to take him back? Would he try to sabotage your relationship? You, you know better than I what the answer to all of these questions would be. And if the answer is yes to even one or two of them, then you might want to move the fuck out. But who knows? Maybe you lay this all out for him and it helps him realize that this relationship is over and he distances himself from you as best he can while you're still living in the same place and creates some space for your boyfriend, your new boyfriend to be present and doesn't react angrily to whatever relationship your new boyfriend establishes with these people that he's had a relationship with for a while, your roommates, maybe he's capable of that. But if he ain't, this is just going to be a shit show. And if he ain't, he's going to have to move out or you're going to have to move out. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. Dan, I had a first date the other night, and at some point the conversation got around to the LGBTQ community specifically the trans community. The things that this guy 
uh, was saying were very close-minded and archaic, for lack of a better word. There was a lot of victim-blaming and shaming from his part. Um, Throughout the whole experience, my blood was boiling over, and I tried my best to keep my composure at the same time, educate him in a simple way without causing a scene. And after about 10 or 15 minutes of countering his lame-ass arguments, I decided to leave and end the conversation. My question is, what else could I have done or what is something to say specifically uh, to someone to educate them, uh, someone who is victim-blaming or shaming a community instead of running away in anger with only my minor points being made? Is it possible or is it a lost cause? On behalf of the LGBTQ plus community, I want to thank you for speaking up for my trans brothers and sisters and my trans non-binary sibs. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you could in that moment. Stop beating yourself up about whether you could have done more. You heard him out. You responded to his arguments. You don't share his arguments with me, so I can't really arm you with counter arguments in case you find yourself in this situation again. But you did everything an ally could be expected to do in that moment. You spoke up in defense of queer people when one of your fellow straight people assumed that you would be down with his anti-trans bigotry. And then you ended the date you ended the relationship that this could have been and it cost him something his bigotry cost him something it cost him your time your attention and if you can extrapolate into the future if you guys had hit it off and if he was attracted to you it cost him your pussy so you did everything an ally could be expected to do in that moment and we want to thank you or i want to thank you on behalf of the LGBTQ+, plus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, community. And now I give you permission to stop obsessing about this, to stop thinking about what else you could have said in the moment. You weren't going to bring him around. What he took away from that moment was that he can't assume that all straight people are anti-trans bigots like he is. And maybe he's going to go away and think about it. But you know what you get to do now? You get to go away and not think about him anymore with my blessing. Hi, Dan. I am a black heterosexual woman from California, and I have a question about the man in episode 749 who was, I guess, through surgery or something, trying to put foreskin on his circumcised penis, which is something I had no idea anyone did, so I learned something new. But I just have a question about the circumcision debate, and I was wondering if there have has been any research that you know of done on how women feel about having sex with circumcised versus uncircumcised men? Because I can say as a woman who has experienced sex with both, I find that having sexual intercourse with a man who is not circumcised feels much better than a man who is circumcised. Not saying that you know sex can't be good with a with a circumcised man, but it just I, there have been a lot of studies showing that most women can't reach orgasm with just straight penis and vagina sex. But I find that that's not an issue with men who are uncut. That you know I've, I have no trouble orgasming orgasming with men who are not circumcised. And just anecdotally talking to girlfriends of mine, many have said the same thing. And so I was just wondering if there's any research done on that aspect of it. 
And I know a lot of people out there are going to say, you're a woman, you should have no say in this argument or this discussion. But, you know, men have no problem telling women, you know, making comments about our vaginas and having us wax and shave them and groom them to their desires. So I don't feel guilty about wading into this topic. Women have a lot to say about circumcision. Very few men, very few males get circumcised in adolescence or adulthood. Most are circumcised, most men who are circumcised, most men who are cut are circumcised as infants. And mom plays a very crucial role in that decision. So yeah, circumcision, women play a role. Women's opinions about circumcision tend to matter. Now, women aren't sleeping with the boys or men that they had circumcised as infants, of course, but what women think and women's preferences around their boy baby's genitalia, yeah, plays into the whole circumcision thing. Most research, particularly most research in North America about a preference for circumcised or uncircumcised finds that women prefer circumcised because that's what they're used to. Not because that's what feels better, but because that's what's normal. That's what they're likeliest to encounter. That's what they may have seen in pornography. And, you know, they had four or five boyfriends in a row who didn't have foreskins until they encountered one with a foreskin and they may have reacted negatively, particularly if that's an early boyfriend and a young man who doesn't know how to clean himself or isn't cleaning himself well. You know, if you have a foreskin, you have to go that extra mile hygiene-wise. But as to whether there's any research out there about it being easier for women with an uncircumcised partner during vaginal intercourse to climax, I wasn't able to find that. Are there any sex researchers listening to the show who did that study or know where that study is? Please send it along or give us a call. But I couldn't find it. And my hunch is that it's irrelevant. There's a huge psychological component to sex. If you have a strong preference for uncircumcised men and you're more turned on, if you're more aroused when you're having PIV sex with a circumcised man, it may be easier for you because of your psychological investment because of your erotic mind being really clicked into that big uncut dick, it may be easier for you to climax and get off through PIV. And you may be a little less excited when you're with a circumcised guy. And there may be a little self-fulfilling prophecy at work there where you see the cut dick and you go, ah, it's not as easy for me to come with a cut dick. And then you make it self-fulfilling prophecy. You make it more difficult for you to come with that cut dick because you're not expecting to come as easily with that cut dick. Or who knows, while we're spitballing, maybe the presence of that extra skin introduced into the vaginal canal has a frictitious effect. Maybe it creates a little bonus friction that helps to get you there. But it's not the stimulation of the vaginal canal and just introducing more skin into the vaginal canal that helps women get off. It's focused, direct, clitoral stimulation, sometimes to the head, sometimes to the shaft or wings of the clitoris. Those are internal. But most women need more than just PIV to climax. And there's been a lot of study about that, that most women need more than just PIV. They need additional, sometimes concurrent, focused stimulation of the clitoris during PIV to climax. If there was a role in that, that foreskins played, I think that would have been highlighted by sex researchers already. In the very fraught circumcision debate space, I think people would be interested in that. Again, just because I wasn't able to find it doesn't mean it's not out there. 
Evidence of absence is not absence of evidence. If someone's done the research or knows of the research, please send it along. But what I think is at play here for you is a strong preference for a certain kind of cock and being with a guy with that kind of cock turns you on more and being more turned on helps you get off more easily or faster than being with a guy whose cock is not the kind of cock you most prefer. Thanks for calling and good luck out there. And I'm a fan. I'm a fan myself of the uncircumcised dick. So I'm right there with you in the trenches. Hi, Dan. I am a 40-year-old hetero woman looking for a kinky sexual partner, and it's depressing me. All I want is a sexual outlet in my life so I can experience lust and satisfaction outside of my head. I used to not need this kink to come and bed, but in the last decade, I had two long-term relationships with people who I was less than excited with in that way. So I just kind of took over mentally and helped myself along while always fucking them. And it's really, it got me in this um, groove of really needing that in order to come. Um, With the last guy, I tried to get him into being more dominant, but he just pretty much didn't. And it caused a lot of resentment. Anyway, I'm single now and I was just tired of looking at porn and or being unsatisfied with like vanilla hookups. So I delved into the kink community about four months ago and I have had a variety of experiences. And I know that's not long. (laughs) However, it's just like I keep being built up and then maybe they flake in the end or we have great conversation. But then when push comes to shove, actually the dude's just into like straight up rough physical sex, which isn't going to do it for me or like they wanted more. And then that just makes the whole thing weird. My experience with relationships has been extremely stressful and agonizing and I'm trying to avoid getting into that for the time being. So I just, I'm looking for a sexual outlet and I'm just getting really annoyed with the fact that because of this kink, it it seems actually I need to actually have a larger relationship than I would like in order to make sure it's satisfied and have a trusted long-term regular partner who wants to do this or has the same things that get them off. I'm just feeling like it would be so much easier if I could just fuck someone quickly and not have to have these sort of personal conversations and suss them out so so deeply in order that I could get off. It just seems like a big hassle. So you can have sex that doesn't get you off and doesn't require the work of negotiating a dom-sub relationship or a dom-sub encounter. And that does take a lot of negotiation. Or you can have sex that gets you off, that has a dom-sub element, dom-sub dynamic, but that requires a lot of negotiation. It requires work and you kind of don't want to do the work and you're a little angry at your pussy that it requires you to do this kind of work if you want to have sex that satisfies you. But what are you going to do? This is what your pussy requires. This is what your erotic imagination demands. It's a necessary component of sex, that dom-sub dynamic, if you are going to get off during that sex. All right. So what do you do about bringing that into your life? Well, you have two options. You can do these prior negotiations 
You can reach out to guys on FetLife. You can meet people through whatever kink apps or kink events. Once we're having kink events again, once munches are back, whatever is pitched to your style or preferences of Dom Sub and kink play. And you can meet guys in those spaces and see if you click and connect. A lot of those guys that you'll meet in those spaces have partners and so may not want more than you're willing to give them. Sounds like you've gotten to some situations where someone was more interested in a relationship and you were just interested in the sex. Well, get into kink spaces. You'll meet lots of partnered people who are in kink spaces to play with other kinky people with the consent, ethical non-monogamy of their partners at home who may be vanilla or that that kind of DS play isn't as exciting with the known quantity and the intimacy of a day-in, day-out partner. And so they seek it elsewhere. So you could be that elsewhere. And you can have an established thing with someone who is regular and trusted and vetted and you have a rapport with but isn't demanding too much of you relationship-wise. But requires getting out there and doing the work, meeting the people, asking the questions, having the negotiations, seeing if you connect. Your other option is to... Make it clear to guys you're looking for something casual and then hook up with guys and see if there isn't something there. See what their erotics are like when you're with them. There are lots of people out there having vanilla sex who would rather be having dom-sub sex or super kinky sex, but they don't want to do the negotiation or they're shy or they haven't realized that they can put this out there, that, that, that there are lids for their pots. There are kinky lids for their kinky pots. They might just be sailing along, having vanilla sex until they meet someone who is as kinky as they are or more kinky than they are who draws it out. Now, I talk about that moment when you have to lay your kink cards on the table like a couple months into a relationship if you're kinky and you're capable of having and enjoying vanilla sex and you've been having vanilla sex for a while and it looks like it's getting serious. You don't want to wind up in a long-term partnership with someone that you're not sexually compatible with. And after you've demonstrated that, yeah, vanilla is something you can do and enjoy, you got to lay your kink cards on the table. It is a thing. I've heard from people that this has happened to, but they have laid their kink cards down on the table and the other person has looked at them and gone, oh my God, here are mine. And they're the same. You can have a Yahtzee moment like that, but not if you don't take a risk, not if you don't ever lay those kink cards on the table. So get on the kink sites, get your ass to the munches and the kink events when they're back. Find the Dom guys out there that would be good play partners for you, Dom guys who have partners at home who aren't looking for something more serious, and casually fuck around with guys you assume to be vanilla who are going to assume that you're vanilla too. And then you can roll it out that you ain't that vanilla. And you may find in the rolling it out that they ain't that vanilla either. And finally, try to have some perspective. You say this is such a big hassle to get out there and find the people that you can connect with sexually that work for you. Everyone has that big hassle. Nobody is just generic sex who's looking for generic sex with a generic sex partner. Everybody. Kinky or vanilla has this struggle to find people that work for you, that want what you want, that you're sexually compatible with, that is complicated. That is a hassle. It's a hassle for everyone. Wherever they fall on the kink spectrum, wherever they fall on the sexual orientation spectrum, wherever they fall on the gender expression spectrum, what you're suffering isn't unique. This hassle, it's everyone's struggle. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call 
what you got. We're going to take a quick break from your calls for a slightly different What Do You Got segment. Usually a What Do You Got is about a recently released paper, research project. This What Do You Got was inspired by a Twitter thread. Professor Gail Patricelli is a professor of evolution and ecology at the University of California, Davis. She studies conservation and the evolution of elaborate breeding behaviors in birds. She teaches about animal sex at UC Davis, but she's here today to talk about cow pies. But before we get to the cow pies, I want to talk about sex robots. I have been obsessed about sex robots forever. I've been talking about the coming of the sex robots, predicting the coming of the sex robots. And then I do a little reading about you and I find out that you have deployed the sex robots, but for birds. Um, yeah, they're, they're sex robot birds, <laughs> so they might not have been how you were envisioning the, the arrival of the sex robots. But yeah, so I got started in the 90s doing this, trying to study the evolution of courtship behavior and the interaction between males and females. And so I, you just want to control one side of that conversation. So that's the idea with the robot. And so uh, the sage grouse that I'm studying now. Wait a second. I want to know how many of our tax dollars have been wasted at your liberal university building sex robots <laughs> for birds when human beings don't yet have access to sex robots. It doesn't seem right. Uh, yeah. So we've been we study the evolution of courtship and um, and all sorts of aspects of of the evolution of these displays. But we also do a ton of research on conservation of these birds. And um, so we have we have serious research that we we do and with do the robots. The, but and, we uh, okay. Also so the robots aren't laugh. just for fun. It's not like the sideline, the drinking game. No. After the real serious research, the robots are intrinsic to the very serious research about conservation in these bird species. Exactly. And they're actually, you know, for a few hundred dollars, you can make your own bird sex robot. You just, you need, you know, some taxidermy skills. It's basically like a animatronic taxidermy bird on four wheel drive. So what attracted me or what caught my interest, not attracted me about your <laughs> Twitter thread was this isn't about a bird that's interested in a, a mate, a, a, a regular bird mate. It's not a bird that you tempted away from another bird with a bird bot. There are birds that that basically fuck shit. <laughs> Can you explain yes. what's going on? It's cow pies. There's, <laughs> there are birds that just won't opportunistically gratify themselves on a cow pie, but seem to have a sexual orientation that directs them at cow pies. Can you explain and unpack this for me? Yes, we have, we've had a few quirky individuals over the years who seem to prefer cow pies to real females. And so I was talking about this because I was explaining that we can fool the birds with robots because they're, you know, the threat, the bar is low, basically, because they will also try to mate with cow pies. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we see it's usually most birds, it's just an occasional thing. Like they'll just notice a cow pie, have a quick copulation and then go on with their day. And it just happens every once in a while. But over the years, we have had these serial cow pie copulators that um, that basically just will obsess about a single cow pie and even to the exclusion of real female sage grouse. So there'll be a hen walking by and he'll just turn around and walk away and go back to the cow pie. 
And uh, and this will happen just over and over again during the day. So monogamous bird corporophiliacs is what you've observed yeah. in the wild. Um, yes. And these are not a monogamous bird in general. <laughs> and so what does that say about the female of the species, that if the male is going to mate monogamously, that that rarely happens? And when it does happen, it's with a cow pie. <laughs> Well, females are in control of the whole situation about mating on this in this species. So the males all gather together in a big group and puff up and strut around. Females show up in comparison shop for a mate. And so they tend to all like the same one or two males, and they all get to mate with him. So they all get their, their pick of who to mate with. And so you end up with a few males that have just huge mating success. So we had one guy that we nicknamed Dick, who mated <laughs> 137 times during this you know month and a half breeding season. And 30 of those copulations were on a single morning of a few hours, and 23 of those were in a 23-minute period of time where he made it once a minute for 23 minutes. It was very, wow. very impressive. Wow, you have got to bottle and sell that bird. That sounds like some sort of natural Viagra at work there. Yes, yeah, so he, um, yeah, he was he was very energetic. And um, and so basically these males are ready to go. They're ready if if they are the dick, the sage grouse of that year. They are ready to mate a lot. And so they're pretty keyed up. And that is why I think we see them occasionally spilling over into cow pies. Okay. So the birds, these male, what are they? Sage grouses? Sage grouse. They can come 23 times in 10 minutes, but yeah. only one or two will be selected by all of the females, which means there's a lot of excess sage grouse jizz rattling around in sage grouse nuts looking for a place to be unloaded and, and so are the cow pies a thing a male, male is, is it the like the the tube sock equivalent for the the sage grouse where this is where they're going to unload for want of some other orifice or some other partner or some other friction opportunity uh or if there was a willing female, would the cow pies be unmolested? So for the vast majority of the males, they would pick a real female over a cow pie. It's really only these few serial cow pie copulators that seem to go all in on cow pies. Um, but they don't do it to like a, t a clump of dirt or a rock or anything else that is out there. It's just the cow pie. So I think it's they're brown and round, and they don't run away. And most of those males have not experienced a female who doesn't reject them. And so I think it's just like this, this stimulus that they can't resist. And it's only out there because of humans. We have cattle tanks in these areas, and so there are cow pies all over the place in the leks. And so we've surrounded them basically with these like irresistible sex dolls. And most of them don't treat it that way, but... Every once in a while, you get the, you know, the male that, yeah, like I said, goes all in on the cow pies. I am really afraid that the scat community, the human scat community, is going to adopt their brown and round and don't run away <laughs> as a, a motto or a slogan promoting mating with human scat, which you shouldn't do. Please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> so the first time you noticed a bird, one of these sage grass that you study, mating with a cow pie, were you like holy fuck and filed it away when did you realize there was a pattern where you like comparing notes with other scientists and you were like holy shit 
were you tracking one particular bird and that bird kept returning to that cow by? How did you make the link? How did you make the discovery? And what does it mean for humans on dating apps? So we we were out observing the whole lek. We're up on a hill and you can see all the males out there. And you'll just, we just, I mean, I think from the very beginning, we started seeing the occasional male doing this. So we have to make notes about it so that we don't mix it up with an actual copulation because we're trying to understand who's successful and who isn't. And that's not really what we mean by successful <laughs> with the cow pie. So, um, so we've seen it from the very beginning. And anybody who studies courtship or, I mean, all my wildlife friends, when I, you know, I posted that on Twitter and people started replying with stories about their study species copulating with random things. Um, but the thing that's so funny about this is I think it's, it's because they're only out there because of people and they just, I don't think anyone else had a story of males who become exclusive with this random thing. <laughs> and so, so that's how we just got started. We noticed that a few males were really into this and like we had two males where the, that both were serial cow pie copulators and had territories next to each other and both were into the same cow pie and they would fight over her. If one tried her? to make excuse me, wait, the, the cow pie is this cow pie is gendered. <laughs> well, we How did, was it a was pink her. cow pie? How did you know it was a her cow pie? Maybe they're like gay sage grouse into the brown round and won't turn you down. It's that's very true. I was being very heteronormative. <laughs> <laughs> they do look a little more like a, a female sage grouse who are all brown and sort of, you know, they camouflage, blend into the background, whereas the males have this huge ruff of white feathers and vocal sacs that are all part of this display to try to impress females. So when you study mating uh, and courtship rituals in the animal world, you do notice things like that. The, the big red ass, the, the, the inflatable sacs and in the, the throat of many bird species. What do you see in human cultures, human societies, when humans are out there trying to mate? What do you notice as someone who studies these mating display rituals in animal species? What do you notice in humans where you're like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> That, you know, common ancestors, natural selection, millions of years of evolution, but we all share the same common ancestor. You follow the branches far back enough and we are one thing. And so what do we got? What do we do? What are our display behaviors that for you as a scientist that studies these in sage grouses, you seem familiar? So in the sage grouse, it's all about females being choosy and males being pretty indiscriminate, the cow pies being an example of that. Um, but most birds are monogamous or socially monogamous where they'll pair up and raise the young together. And we, you know, I would never say that we're monogamous because humans have every possible arrangement of, you know, breeding system that is out there. But we're both trying to impress each other. It's not a one-way thing between males and females. So so there are anthropologists that are out there studying this stuff, and I don't actually know what is the best supported. But, I mean, there's, yeah, I don't know if it's wealth, showing off wealth. That is definitely uh, one of the things that we see non-human animals doing is they they do these displays that are very costly to show off that they have a lot of energy they'll dance around with a bunch of you know show off their vigor um and you could argue that a fancy car is accomplishing something similar to that but you know it's hard to draw a link to a particular trait 
understand <laughs> how it relates back to our evolutionary history. So. so where can people who want to know more about sage grouses and cow pies and those romances and your bird sex robot research, where can they find it? Where can they find your stuff? Well, they can start out on my website um, or they could just Google. If you Google sage grouse robot, you'll end up at my website. <laughs> it's a small, it's a small niche community. Um, and so you'll start there. And then we have a YouTube page with lots of videos of these birds doing their thing. And it talks more about our conservation research, the serious research that we do. Um, but we also, it, science is fun. We have a lot of fun out there. So these are the things we laugh about. And- okay. I- I'll give you like a minute to talk about the serious research. Now that I've sensationalized the sex robots and the cow pies, give us the, give us the elevator pitch for the serious part of it. So the evolution side of things, I'm interested in the evolution of these social skills, the interactions between males and females, and the fact that that is a sexually selected trait. So not just the peacocks train, but actually the ability to interact. And so the robot allows me to control one side of that conversation. Um, so that's how we've been using the robots as part of our studies of sexual selection. But we also study the um, displays that they do, the bizarre sounds that they make and how noise pollution interferes with that. And um, we're looking now at, you know, what good what good habitat is to support sage grouse. So we're doing a lot of other research that's connected to breeding that is focused on conservation and larger questions. But we've never systematically really studied cow pie copulation. I would say that on the list of conservation concerns for the sage grouse, it is it's at the very, it's below the very bottom of the <laughs> list of concerns. And so uh, the fact that there's cow pies out there and some males are wasting their energy on them, I, I suspect that those males would not have been contributing to the gene pool, even if there were no <laughs> cow pies around. <laughs> we can only hope. Professor Gail Patricelli, Professor of Evolution and Ecology at the University of California, Davis, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking robots and cow pies. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old heteroflexible cis woman living in California. My boyfriend and I have been together for four and a half years, and we have the most fun, relaxed, loving, uh, sexually satisfying relationship. It's by far the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, and we are breaking up. We've been talking about it for two years, and what it comes down to is that he wants to have children, and I very much do not. I've known since I was 16 that I didn't want to have kids, and I'm not going to change my mind. So knowing that this fact exists has never actually made our relationship weird or sad. We're both very logical people. We've had emotional but practical conversations around the subject. Uh, Anyway, long story short, we decided that the end of this year, it was time to bring things to a close. It didn't make sense to break up earlier in the pandemic. We don't live together, so it'll be a clean breakup. It's completely amicable. My question is, is it concerning that I'm feeling so calm about ending the best relationship I've ever had? I feel sad, of course, but also just sort of matter of fact. I feel like I should be having more emotions around this and that I'm somehow stonehearted for not feeling more about it. Um, It's always possible the heartbreak will hit after the fact, but I'm actually not sure it will. So are there other people out there who can love so deeply but also have such a lack of emotional reaction to a big emotional event like this? Like, am I an emotional robot? 
It sounds like you're a very rational and logical person. And going into this relationship, or perhaps early in the relationship, you and your boyfriend, that you love very much, established that it wouldn't be forever, that you couldn't be in this relationship forever because you had such divergent life goals. So what worked for you and what worked for him in your mid to late 20s and into your early 30s obviously wasn't going to be you know, the final destination, wasn't going to be the relationship you would, he would ultimately want to be in or the relationship you would ultimately want to be in. And so perhaps whatever grieving or sadness that you had to wrestle with, uh, you wrestled with and processed years ago because you knew this day was coming and that when this day came, you would part as friends and you would be able to look back on the years that you spent with him as rewarding and valuable and a great STR. We talk about, I like to talk about STRs. We talk about LTRs all the time, long-term relationships, open-ended relationships, as if they're the only ones that matter, the only ones that are valid when people say, you know, where's this relationship going? Or, you know, is a relationship even possible? What they mean is a relationship that goes on and on and on indefinitely until somebody dies. Well, I think we should talk about good STRs too, that, you know, the relationship can be something that two people emerge from alive and go their separate ways and still have been a success. I think it's a success, long-term or short-term. If people grow and change and are better people by dint of having been in the relationship and are grateful and happy, and if both people get out of it alive, there isn't a lot of anger and bitterness or not so much anger and bitterness that it can't be overcome and you can't reconnect as friends and stay in each other's lives, even if you're at a distance, you know, emotional or sometimes even a physical distance. So that you're not grieving this. I suspect that perhaps you already grieved it. You knew this day was coming and maybe it's a day that you two could celebrate. You think about people who have those divorce parties when it's an amicable, super hyper amicable divorce and they free each other to go on with the rest of their lives and new partners. And maybe that's where you two are at. You're going to free each other to go on with your lives and new partners. And so you're welcoming this next stage where you may find a better uh, and more, you know, emotionally and long-term goal appropriate partner for yourself. And so will he, and you'll both be the better and happier for it. And what you prove to each other in this relationship is that you can form a long-term connection that is physically and emotionally rewarding. And so you did that once, you can do it again, you're both going to do it again, and you're going to do it with him in your corner, if not your bed, and he's going to do it with you in his corner, if not in his bed. But it's too bad sometimes that we can't imagine, you know, more complicated, you know, we can't, we can't imagine more complicated and uh, relationships. You know, what, what, wouldn't it be lovely if he could find the person that he wanted to have kids with and you two who've never lived together, never shared a, a place, could maintain your sexual connection that's so valuable and your emotional connection too. And you could be poly. It's a thing. We talk about it occasionally. I'm not inventing anything right now. Sometimes I see people part and they don't necessarily need to part or want to part, but they have it in their heads that they must part. Because what they want or it's something that they want, they can't have with this person that they're in a relationship with now. And they think, well, I need to end this relationship to have what I want or they need to end it to have what they want. And you know what? Maybe we could have the relationship we're in now and another relationship that allows us to have other things, kids with somebody else 
and whatever it is that you two have, you could continue to have. I'm not trying to complicate your amicable breakup by trying to talk you guys into staying together. I'm just theorizing and speculating. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read your tweets. Bry the Gooner tweets, Fucker Carlson's recent ignorant misogynistic comments about the U.S. military and my sisters in arms make me excited to hear at Fake Dan Savage this Tuesday and his, as always, nail-on-the-head perspective on Pox News. Oh, Bry, I'm sorry I didn't cover that at the top of this week's show, but John Oliver said everything that needed to be said on this week's Last Week Tonight. If you missed it or don't have HBO, you can watch Oliver Slam Carlson on YouTube. It is amazing. Diana Daum tweets, very angry that at fake Dan Savage didn't introduce my musical theater-loving ass to Randy Rainbow before this week's show. Diana, darling, Randy Rainbow's recent appearance on the Lovecast was only his most recent appearance on the Lovecast. Had him on the show back in 2016 after Trump won the election and Randy first started making his wonderful parody videos before Trump was even sworn in. So, Diana, I tried. I tried to introduce you to Randy Rainbow years ago right away, and you weren't listening, but I'm glad you're listening now. And finally, Dennis Grace tweets in an ad on the Savage Lovecast episode 750, you, Dan, said nemesises or nemesi, the plural of nemesis is nemesis, the last syllable rhyming with peas. Sorry to be pedantic, but I have to find some use for that graduate degree in English. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. I totally get you. Sometimes I like to fence to get some use out of my BFA in performance. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And we appreciate everyone who posts about the show to Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else on social media helps get the word out about it. And hey, we want to thank everybody who came to last week's, this weekend, last weekend's Savage Love live stream with me and Nancy and Mistress Matisse. It was a blast. We had so much fun. We are definitely going to do that again. We're going to do it sooner rather than later, bring on more guests. So more Savage Love live streams coming your way. And hopefully, as all the vaccines roll out all over the world and more and more people get vaccinated, Savage Love live coming back to a theater near you as well. But we are going to keep doing the live streams. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I wanted to address the caller in episode 750 who feels like he's too late to the party. First of all, you're not. I arrived at the party about the same time as you. I didn't hook up with another guy until I was 26. Spent a few years bouncing around, feeling like I was too late, had missed out, etc. All the things you said. Now at age 38, I'm happily married and about to adopt a child. So everything just worked out swimmingly. And I think it will for you, too. I think that you may find that you're more desirable than you think you are because you are looking for a long-term relationship, which I assume because of your religious background and also the way you spat out the word slut in your call. My experience was that it was super easy to find people to hook up with, even me being an older gay, quote-unquote, also being overweight and not particularly attractive and living in arguably the most conservative backward state in the entire country. Never had a problem finding hookups, but it was a little more difficult to find somebody who was out there seriously looking for a long-term committed relationship. So keep working on yourself and know that you're going to find somebody that thinks you're fantastic. I'm a late 20s, mostly straight female responding to the caller in episode 750 who comes really fast. I personally find it super fucking hot when I'm with someone who climaxes quickly. 
I once had a partner who would come sometimes if I happened to grope him through his pants while we were making out. If we did make it to sex, it would last a minute tops. And ever since then, it has just been a massive turn on. It's very arousing to be with someone who is so turned on that they can't hold back. There's also plenty of porn and erotica out there with a similar theme. So I'm not the only one who finds this incredibly sexy. So my advice would be to not assume that your partner will be turned off or disappointed and that it could potentially be incorporated into the encounter as well. Hi, Dan. This is a response call for the caller on episode 750 who wanted some advice on premature ejaculation. As a woman who loves sex and is in a relationship with a man who has PE, my best advice is it's a problem if you make it a problem. Hiding in the bathroom to jerk off before you fuck makes it a problem. SSRIs are of course an option too, but come with other side effects other than the desired side effect. Mutual masturbation, a quick sloppy BJ, get your partner off once or twice and a sexy handy before PIV can do wonders. And then of course there's strap-ons, cock sleeves, fists and forearms when either person is craving a solid long-lasting PIV fuckfest. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can subscribe to the Magnum Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum is twice as much Savage Lovecast, more guests, more calls, and no ads. You can subscribe at SavageLoveCast.com. You can also gift a subscription to someone that you know who loves the show, who doesn't have the Magnum, or gift a subscription to the Magnum to yourself at SavageLoveCast.com. We're very excited about some guests who are coming up on the show. Erica Moen comes back to the show with her partner in life and partner in the important work she does, Matthew Nolan, to talk about their new book, Let's Talk About It. That's next week. And coming up a couple weeks later, Nick Kroll comedian, actor, producer, one of the geniuses behind Big Mouth is going to be on the Lovecast and we are very excited about that. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Gail Patricelli on Twitter at Gail Patricelli. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy Hartunian. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.